Hello out there. This is Illiterate. My name is Evan. My name is Taylor. I read a book this week. I watched a movie. This week we are covering one of the best films of the year, The United States versus Billie Holiday, directed by Lee Daniels. This is a movie about Billie Holiday's career while she's being pursued by the United States government after writing and performing the song Strange Fruit, which is a describes a lynching in the South uh, and, and really started to catch fire for the uh, the civil rights movement in the 1930s, yeah. 40s and into the 60s. Some would say even it's the start of the yeah. civil rights movement because yes. this hasn't even if you go to Wikipedia and look up the civil rights movement, this isn't even in the <laughs> preface to what it is, but it really is the first time somebody's like, hey, Yes, absolutely. And and and, and it kind of came to my mind of like this might be the actually really like you said the kickoff of the civil rights movement because of the date of her death, which and, and this is what the film goes on to. I, this film tells her story in a way that I never even knew I needed to know. I didn't right. know much about Billie Holiday. I did not know that she had a, a, a drug abuse problem. I did not know she was pursued by the American government and the FBI until the day she died. And I did not know that she died young. She died only 44 at the time of her death. I had no concept of this. And so at yeah. the time of her death, July 17th, 1959, we're going right in, right into the 60s. The civil rights movement is, mm-hmm. is about to catch fire. This, I think she really might be the catalyst for it all because this is such a loss. So what we're going to be covering today is the story that this movie tells is such an important story because we really had no no concept of it at all. And just like last week, we covered with Judas and the Black Messiah. This is, again, another story of, of the American government putting incredible time, effort, and energy into pursuing a, a black public figure. And the book that it's based on is called Chasing the Scream. And then the subtitle is The First and the Last Days of the War on Drugs. So this book uses this story as the catalyst to kind of talk about how drugs are viewed by governments all over the world and various people and and all that stuff. So we won't get too much into that, but I did read as far as it concerns Billie Holiday and all Mm -hmm. all the research that this guy did into what this story was and this kind of being – a big facet of where the war on drugs starts. It's, it seems like they use her as a window to the, to then talk about all the, the exactly. gory details yeah. of the war on drugs. Um, and, and it was something that Lee Daniels said is then that's why he wanted to do this for so long as after reading this script, he had to dive in and get tons of books and documentaries and really get to mm-hmm. the heart of the story because he was so shocked. He could not believe that this was true. Um, and he's even a big fan of, of Lady in the Blues, the older film about her starring Diana Ross. Um, that's one of that's a film that made him want to get into filmmaking. So this is a you know, Billy Holiday has been uh, in his in his mind and in his creative, you know, artist mind going forward. So this is so interesting that somebody like him is now discovered, you know, along along with other people that her yeah. true story and has now brought it to the screen. He said he had seen Lady Sings the Blues when he was 13. Like he said, he said that's the reason he wanted to direct. But also part of it, he said, I saw two black people in love, Diana Ross yes. and Billy D. Williams. This was came out in 72, got five Oscar nominations based on the autobiography that was about Billie Holiday called Lady Sings the Blues. And uh, the screenwriter, Susan DePasse, was uh, the first uh, African-American woman nominated outside of the acting category. Oh, wow. Yeah, pretty incredible. 
So that is where he gets this. And this is really, I mean, there's a ton of books about Billie Holiday, but this is the foremost known kind of biography piece of it. But I don't even really know how much it gets into her troubled relationships, her troubled right. background history leading up to, through no fault of her own, just her, her childhood is awful. What what becomes her yeah. problems as an adult? Like Lee Daniels is saying, he saw this, but then he knows the real story the rest of her life. There's so much more. I, th- I think when they look back at that film now, it's, it's, they don't look at it as, and, I, and now I'm really interested to see it, to be honest. I have not seen it. I would now, having seen this, loved this so much and so interested in this story, I really want to go back at, and look at Lady Sings the Blues and see what uh, those filmmakers did and how, because I, 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 I get the sense that Lee Daniels and Andrew Day were looking in Lady Sings the Blues and could see where, things had gotten covered up a little bit. You could right. see I think where it's just the a glorious... end was for it. And they go, oh, and that's where we're going to expand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I ha- I'll post a link to the trailer. But from what I saw, it just seems like a glorious, wonderful, jazzy film. Right. And, 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 and at that time, yeah. in 1972, it was important. It was so important mm-hmm. to see two black people in love. Yeah. In, in just glorious love and that be the focus of it and not focus on all of the stigmas that surround it that, that could have been brought up, all the things to detract from that. So that, yeah. at that time, that's what it served its purpose for. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would be, I'm really interested to go back and, and take a look at it myself. Yeah, for sure. And then Andra Day is now playing Billie Holiday and Lee Daniels didn't want her at first or is really? like, a, you know, well, <laughs> because somebody said, Hey, you should check this person out. And he's like, nobody tells me what to do. Kind of thing. <laughs> well, so it's so funny guy. because I, I learned of Andrew day a few years ago back in like 2016, she had an album come out she was nominated for like a Grammy and, and all yeah, this is tour. her first acting job. Yeah. She's out of nowhere. She's a musician. She's a singer. She's a vocalist. Uh, so I knew her from her music. I went for one artist and she followed them up and I was absolutely floored by it. And I've been singing her praises since 2016 or 2017, <laughs> but I'd never in my wildest dreams imagined that out of nowhere, she would be cast in a Lee Daniels film, a biopic about Billie Holiday and the war on drugs. And then now she has been nominated for Golden Globe's Best Actress and Best Original Song. Like she's absolutely shooting through the stratosphere right now. Uh, and I have to right. say her and performance like we talked in about- this movie is is transcendent. She has absolutely let go. She is so honest and it is so beautiful. I did not, I don't know what I expected from her, but I, I didn't expect something so bare and honest. Right. And it's like she has, she doesn't, hardly drink. She doesn't smoke to my knowledge. So for this transformation, it was like she had to start smoking. She said she glugged cold water and gin, screamed all the time, worked for over a year to rehearse. (laughs) I'd heard when she auditioned um, that she was 40 pounds heavier, which is striking because you think of those things with like Christian Bale or something, you (laughs) know, and so like, whoa. So this non-actor started taking these acting lessons, working with Lee Daniels, smoking, drinking, <laughs> screaming. And she just lived Billie Holiday for, I, I think they were in pre-production for this and she was cast for close to two years. Yeah. Um, and she said she prayed about it, invited Billie Holiday in to be like, what do you want for me to be with this? You know, is a very spiritual experience even as well to say, I'm, I want to do this person if they're looking from above justice. I hope she goes on to do more stuff, but if she never does another thing in her life, uh, acting-wise, cinema-wise, this was incredible. And even I think even more incredible, too, is the way she got even into the music business might also be sort of reminiscent of Billie Holiday because really? she was just 
try and like everybody else, she said she worked about 20 different jobs before she got her singing work, including one job as a children's entertainer. So she was performing at a strip mall. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was in 2010. Stevie Wonder's wife witnessed her performing and then said, hey, Stevie, we should check this girl out, see what she's doing. No And so then, yeah. So it was a complete random fluke thing that somebody else who is in the scene saw her. And then a year later, Stevie Wonder introduced her to this producer who then collaborates on her debut album a few years later. So it's a direct building off of being found and then one success on to the next. Yeah. But the person who brought this whole thing to Lee Daniels in the first place, Susan Laurie Parks, who is a playwright and screenwriter, she adapted the script first from the book that came out in 2015 and then brought that script Mm. to Lee Daniels and said, hey, do you want to do this? And he said, yes. But she won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 2002 for one of her plays, and she's the first African-American woman to receive the prize for drama. Oh, man. So she has her That's own amazing. levels as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but this book with, that she read and then got, like I said, the first part from Chasing the Scream by Johan Hari, he starts profiling jazz musician Billie Holiday, longtime heroin addict. And then the other two people that he sort of follows at the beginning here is this racketeer Arnold Rothstein, hmm. which was a, who is an early drug trafficker. And then Harry J. Anslinger is the first commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, who then becomes the bulk of the story. So we won't get into the rest of the book, but he interviews drug addicts, dealers, police, lawmakers, scientists, drug addiction specialists, drug reform advocates, and kind of gives examples from other countries and other places of how the war on drugs is being reformed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this guy, Harry Anslinger, just to make sense of it, he's this government bureaucrat. He takes over the Department of Prohibition just as it's ending. The budget was slashed by $700,000. Alcohol essentially won. So it's like, what's the point of his work? It converts to this Bureau of Narcotics. He basically invents the war on drugs. He's actually the first person to use that phrase because he needs something to do. Mm-hmm. Uh. And he, I mean, and he has you know hates for certain people yeah. and certain types of people. So he, this becomes his work. But what's interesting too, I didn't realize this, but when Harry Anslinger and Billy Holiday were born in the early 1900s, drugs are freely available. Like we think of it as a joke, but you could go to any American pharmacy and get products made from the same ingredients as heroin and cocaine. Most yeah. cough mixtures contained opiates. Coca-Cola's made from the same thing as snortable cocaine is. Like that was the thing. Yeah. High society ladies could get little tin boxes that had <laughs> what we would consider hard drugs now, you oh. know, but in more moderation, but you didn't but then he sort of brought it into the fore as like, oh this is destroying everything, but it also had to do with his racism and xenophobia, pinning it on other people. So, And he does become the central antagonist for the film. He is right there front and center as the force, the unrelenting force of the FBI that is forcing the the, uh, Jimmy character to continue. Hmm. I think a great quote to start off her life, which obviously she didn't say at the beginning, but she was... Uh, quoted as saying, I never felt inferior to anybody and I couldn't learn to act as if I did. That was my trouble. Mm. And I think that that is definitely what she's known for. And (laughs) what got her into trouble is the fact, it reminded me a heck of a lot of Ma Rainey. Yeah, yes. For sure. 
Yes, um, so Ma Rainey is preceding this by, you know, 30 years, you know, but I definitely had that come to mind is like, oh, okay, so Ma Rainey had her deal and then uh, uh, and Billie Holiday came around not too much longer. And then when Billie Holiday was gone, the civil rights movement was in, was was coming to a full force. Yeah, and just unapologetic with sex, with drugs, yes. with who she wanted to be, with owning her space and authority and, and all that stuff. But it doesn't start out that way for her. She was born Eleonora Fagan, very tumultuous childhood, teenage parents. Her dad left, and she was most of the time left in the care of abusive relatives while her mom was working. She was sent away. And then at age 10, there was an attempted rape on her, and she was sent to a reformatory school and then dropped out of school at age 12. Good Lord. To get work, she started running errands for a brothel. And this is where she first listened to jazz mm. and got acquainted with what that world was. There's a, a pretty affecting moment in the film. There is an undercover uh, FBI agent that has infiltrated her entourage and is responsible for sending her to jail for the first time. Um, but he comes around and starts following them around on tour. And she's, for some, whatever reason, is growing a liking to him. And, and there's there's a familiarity between them. But uh, it's through this where she where he's regaining her trust that at backstage they they shoot up heroin. When he does it, the camera pans over and Billie Holiday is now a child. But still with her same voice. Uh, she gets up, grabs his hand. Uh, Jimmy is played by Trevante Rhodes from Moonlight. She grabs his hand and leads him out of the room and down into the hallway. And suddenly we're in a brothel. Mm -hmm. And she's leading this this child, Billy Holiday, is leading him down the hallway. As all these things are going on, brothel things are going on in all the rooms and down the hallway and everything. She's looking for a mom. She gets down to her room. She can't find her mom. She lays up on the bed and she starts playing a record and then her mom appears in the doorway. And this is when her mom basically tells her that she can't stay in the brothel because she's taking up too much space. Uh, but it's all experienced through this heroin trip. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really an intimate, delicate moment. And it, it it was such, it gives you such a window. Well, and that's it's definitely part of the latter half of the book too, making that corollary. It's like there is a, a a strong connection between childhood trauma and drug abuse and addiction later in life. Yeah, not necessarily just that the drugs are addictive, but what are the the precedents set to to create this part of of your psyche? The, I guess. Yeah, yeah. what cre what created the need? Yeah. So that is definitely part of her childhood and including her mother. So she, like I said, she was with these other relatives, but she went back to live with her mother who was working as a prostitute, which then Billie Holiday became a part of and was at age 14, which oh is gosh. just insane. Like that's up until 14, this is, this is your, your life. They were both actually sent to prison for a time after the brothel was raided. Oh my God and then released. So her career start comes in the early 1930s. She's singing in jazz clubs in Harlem, you know, little things here and there covering mm -hmm. for people, etc. Her recording debut comes about when this producer, this guy last name Hammond, hears her at 18 years old and says, my God, this is amazing. This is insane what she's doing. Does she even know what she's do doing? Right. <laughs> and off she goes. And just, you know, success after success, working with people, meeting with people, joining different groups, et cetera. 
she toured with Count Basie in 1937 and then afterwards joined Artie Shaw's group. And this was a huge deal because she was one of the first black performers featured in an all white band. Mm. Um, and I think that th- this sort of leads us into, okay, well, what did this guy Hammond see? What makes her different as a performer? Mm-hmm. I think one of the things, and the, the, they're, they're personal and performative, she did not shy away from her addiction struggles. As we said, like this is a part of her life. Mm-hmm. And then one of the things which hopefully comes through is the the clothes that she wore, which reminded me a lot of Ma Rainey again. Yes, um, yes. The costume designer was saying, even for the film, he was struck by how experimental she was with her clothes. He was like, I would look at her and be like, what year is this? Absolutely. There, yeah. there, there was a, sp- a particular scene I've already described where, um, where she, um, where we experience a lynching with her, a real, a real mm. lynching, and the dress that she is wearing. I had that exact thought. She gets off the bus and goes through this cornfield up to uh, a burning cross and a, and a, a, bar- a barn burning, and there's a lynching ha- having taken place, uh, and the dress that she is wearing. I was looking at. It's the only time in the entire movie where I went. Is that a period dress? <laughs> wait, wait, that looks that looks like Andrew Day just yeah wore wore that. <laughs> like it, it was beautiful, but I was like, is that really from the period? But I mean, the more I looked at it, I mean, I guess I mean, I guess so. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty. That's that's also actually. what makes her different. Yeah, or uh, the costume designer was like, or she's not wearing a bra at the time, and undergarments are so regimented, just like every convention the long gloves that she had too became an iconic fashion mm. element but also now it's like oh yeah they, they were used to hide her needle marks on her arms as well it was a a dual right. purpose uh, thing yes yes another piece up front with her enjoyment of sex with men and women which again reminded me of ma rainey see they uh, they allude so there's one point where the fbi agents are interrogating a friend of her and are yeah. like really really ha- hammering down on her, are you sexually involved with her but that's about the only time that that is directly brought up so i was based on the film i was like is that something the fbi is concocting you know another slander you know some sort of thing just to throw at her or was there really was was she actually in no, that was well known yeah that her really cool was her okay friend yeah 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 very cool and then, I, in it was, terms of the-, the way it was presented in the film i wasn't sure if it was the fbi just like trying to throw anything they can at no, her yeah. or if it was actually real that's really fascinating yeah and then from her performance standpoint, her voice, I had seen that somebody had said that she has one of the narrowest ranges of any singer, which doesn't sound good. Like it's mm-hmm. an octave and a half. And he was saying most of us might have more. Like if you tried to sing just a generic mm-hmm. person, like you could do more than that. <laughs> but the thing that got her then was her improvisational methods, tempo, delivery, jazz instruments inspired her vocal style. And this is where it's like, uh, yes. oh, her voice is another instrument and she gets jazz to a level where her voice, like she would sing the same song differently depending on the day in the audience, right. sing off beat. Like nobody would dare to do that. The singer is just like a thing and then the instruments go in and they do their solos. But she was doing her own thing completely and really understands what jazz is. God, really, really bearing down into the art of it, man. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I mean, just fully like, no, no, no. I'm an instrument, and I'm feeling it, and this is what it is tonight, and it's going to feel different tomorrow. Yeah, it's really, that's really, really cool. But unfortunately, she was fed up with the discrimination while she was touring. Like I said, with that all white band group, 
And mm-hmm. so she returned to New York and starts performing in the clubs again. And this is where she starts performing the famous song Strange Fruit, like we said, mm-hmm. potentially the beginning of the civil rights movement. She was very particular about how it was presented. First sang in 1939 at Cafe Society, which was actually the first integrated nightclub in New York City. Oh, wow. So black and white folks in the crowd. But the rules for it, if you will, the lights had to go dark, except for a spotlight on her face. The wait staff was not allowed to keep shuffling about the room or taking orders or doing anything. Mm-hmm, Everything mm-hmm. had to be still. There was no encore. There was no music. When the lights went off and then came back on, she was just gone from the audience, almost in a way like a performance piece where it's like, here, now you just have to sit with this. Like yes. This is not a happy, jazzy love song like you came here, you had yeah. a good time. Now think about what's actually happening. If you're listening to this, you'll get up out of your chair right now and leave this performance and go do something about it. <laughs> right. Well, that was the thing. It's like the white audience either has to wait in discomfort or they would leave being like, I don't know what this is. Mm-hmm. Um, that's even a different, that's a different way that I was thinking. I was right. like, I, I, it was such a call to arms in such a way that it would, I, I, I would hope I would guess that they were, you know, some of the hope would be they would move you to action and that you wouldn't even listen to the whole song. You just got to go do something. Right. Um, But that's a whole different view of it, of the uncomfortable awkwardness of not understanding or being, you know, oh, no, (laughs) God, the whiteness of it. (laughs) Yeah. But the the you're talking about like taking action and and then you said at the beginning, which I didn't want to correct because I wanted to get to this part, Mm. not written by Billie Holiday. Ah, yeah, I, I I did know that. I, I I didn't even realize I slipped that. So sorry. Well, no, it's okay. It's it's what's interesting about it where you're talking about people taking action. So it was actually written by this Jewish teacher, Abel Merpool. It was a poem that he wrote. Hmm. It was called Bitter Fruit. He was an English teacher for his whole life, basically, at wow. DeWitt Clinton High School in the Bronx, which we had mentioned before in a way long ago episode. This is a very no. famous high school. Tons of famous people have graduated from there. James Baldwin, Tracy Morgan, Stan Lee. Oh my gosh. Bill Finger and Bob Kane, who did Batman, Ralph Lauren. Lots and lots of people. But we talked about it in our Stan Lee episode, but that doesn't really matter, except for the fact that this guy was the teacher around this time and had come up with this poem. And his wife had performed it at various social events and things. But eventually, one of the producers had seen it, brought it to Billie Holiday and said, hey, what do you think of this? And then she was the one that really popularized it. But it came from somebody, this guy, Abel, who had seen that photo of the lynching from Indiana and mm-hmm. came up with this poem and then and then subsequent Very song Very interesting. For it. It's making me think of One Night in Miami. If we go back to that. Malcolm X talking to Sam Cooke about uh, Bob Dylan right. um, uh, writing a more uh, prescient civil rights song than Sam Cooke could. Um, so it's so interesting that here that parallel is still there. It's still like a Jewish white guy bringing the words out to it. And then, but she sees how incredible it is and latches onto it. And because she is what she is, it galvanized it. Well, it's also like he or his wife singing, it doesn't have the same effect, like shouldn't exactly. have the same effect. It doesn't, you know, or he has, or doesn't, it doesn't have the, the close enough contact where he's like, I'm going to write this thing. But then- right. For her to be the one to perform it and really give it its life for is it what to is be needed. coming through her as a prism. I mean, it it undeniably charges it in a different way. Yeah, it's also looking at it. It's hard to frame it, but even now, it's like the song is still so heavy and and yeah. and contemplative and everything. Like it, it's hard to think 
but Ella Fitzgerald is also in this time, but sh- the same year she's doing a tisket, a tasket, which is mm. the most like silly, light, bouncy. So- <laughs> and then like strange fruit. It, it's, it's looking at those parallels. It's like nobody, what is this song that she's doing every single night with a spotlight and the waiters can't move and then she disappears. Yeah. So her label that she had at the time, Columbia, refused to record it. So she had to get another label to put it on. I'm trying to think about what that would feel like now. Like, what is the equivalent? Is that like, this is America? You, I guess, you know, yeah. like, it's like the only thing I can think of in recent memory that is mm-hmm. that, that is at least that cutting about what is going on in our society from a major artist. I'm, I'm yeah. thinking who's just, who's just willing to say it as it is, no matter how uncomfortable it, it, it is. I, I'm, I'm like, I'm struggling to really find that. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's a good and, parallel. And, you know, I, I, I hadn't thought about that point, but it's just coming to mind. I'm like, I can't, I wish there were more, especially in the times that we're living through. I wish there were more artists, you know, that were writing songs directly about it. Yeah. And the, the, the title strange fruit is so haunting and so yes. uh, piercing What's so interesting, the phrasing of it, because, I mean, it really puts, I mean, I've, I mean, uh, it's so, it's so haunting and transfixing. I mean, it puts you in a moment and, and it's almost as if you can feel the breeze. Yeah. And how unsettling that is um, when you're seeing what you would be seeing. Yeah. And like, if you have never heard this song, I'll post a link to it. There's only one video recording of... Billy Holiday performing wow. this. So I found the link to it on YouTube, but I'll post that. But this song is is going, I mean, people like it. It's not like it's being banned, but the thing is that now we get to the guy, Harry Anslinger, mm-hmm. that we talked about at the beginning. And the reason the book is called Chasing the Scream, his whole psyche is against drugs and everything from the beginning. He grew up in Pennsylvania, born similar time to Billy Holiday, but this farmer that lived next door, her, his wife had a morphine addiction and he was told, you know, go take the horse and cart, get her morphine from the pharmacy to stop her screaming. And then he would come back with it. And so that's why this author titled the mm. book that, because it's really about this guy chasing the scream being like, how do I stop this? Like it just, he has such a prejudice wow. and a vengeance against it. And really his two hates, like well, I there said, you go. there's some, there's some interesting childhood trauma there. Yeah. Um, you know, that we were talking about that earlier. What mm-hmm. creates this need that created, I mean, what the psyche did that influence for him of like, oh, I need, I, like you said, I need to stop this. And that he thought he, you know, maybe he thought, I don't know. I don't, yeah. I, it, ugh, but, you know, maybe in some ways he thought he was doing good, but totally blinded by that. But it's like good at all costs. Like, what good yeah. is that? <laughs> like, the book no. posits, yeah, <laughs> you know what you're doing. The book posits like his two hates. One, like we said, people with addiction problems. And then his yeah. other one is just anybody that's not white, African-American, Chinese. Uh, He's just very xenophobic. I mean, the, the author posits, he was saying he was regarded as a crazy racist in the 20s, which is like, that's how racist wow. he was. He used the N-word so often in official memos that his own senator said he should resign. Wow. Like that's how oh he's, he's completely off the rails. Um, put that up against Billie Holiday, whose attitude is, F you, I'll sing whatever I please. Right. <laughs> Not illegal to sing a song. Right. Until it is, I guess. <laughs> right. So he's doing everything he can to stop her. So then that gets to the Trevante Rhodes Fletcher character, Jimmy Fletcher, who was a real life figure who hung around the jazz scene, actually did arrest her. In the Chasing the Scream, that's where there's sort of a, a, a 
question of had he fallen in love with her, maybe like that's not really up to historic record. But it's possible because he told Holiday's biographer in the 70s that he regretted the betrayal. She'd forgiven him. He actually has an inscribed copy of her autobiography that she wrote in for wow. him. So it doesn't seem like there was malice towards them afterwards. Unlike the, it, the, the film ends with saying he regretted it until yeah. the day he died. Yeah. He maintained that he regretted it. More, less like the Judas and the Black Messiah in Where he's where like he's, playing the middle and then exits IRL. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So as far as going on with Billie Holiday's life, by 1947, she had made, just to get a sense of her scope, $250,000. This is now three years in a row, which would be almost $3 million today per year um, for her singing. But she's plagued by drug use and abusive relationships that siphon all her money away from her. Mm-hmm. The ghosts of her past. And this is where she's continually threatened by the FBI to stop singing this song. Eventually, this guy Fletcher busts her for possession. And this is in 47. She's arrested. The court case is the United States versus Billie Holiday, which mm-hmm. is what the title of the film the is. The titular court case. Yes. <laughs> and uh, she said, well, that's what it feels like. Like she felt like she had nobody. It was everybody against her and everybody had abandoned her. Her lawyer actually declined to come to the trial to represent her. And uh, she pled guilty to be sent to a hospital for treatment. And then they sent her to jail instead. Uh, And so she was there for eight months. And then the thing is, this is also part of the war on drugs kind of thing is like, what do you do to somebody to really stop them and haunt them? And it's taking away what gives them purpose. It's like, the question of being convicted for drugs or drug possession or drug use or whatever. And then it's like, oh, well, now you can't work and now you can't get an apartment and now you can't do anything. And so the thing with her was the federal government took away her cabaret license, which means she can't sing in bars and clubs or where they serve alcohol, which is what her whole life has been. Right. And so it's like, oh, we got you for this, but now also we're going to take away your livelihood. Everything. And it's like, well, what would that make you? You think you would just be like, "Oh yeah, that sounds good. I guess I'm going to stop doing drugs now because I, I have everything just, taken uh, away from engineer, me. engineer another uh, career." Yeah, good luck. So, luckily though, she got a new manager, and 11 days after she got out of prison, she did a performance at Carnegie Hall, sold out to an integrated wow. audience. She continues to sing "Strange Fruit," but her personal life is taking a toll on it. Like you said, all these people that are pulling everything out of her. By the mid-50s, she's touring Europe, which also reminded me a lot of Judy Garland. Yes. Which is actually happening at the same time. And this is where the last bit she's taken to the hospital for cirrhosis and is arrested in her hospital room, handcuffed to the bed. This is in 59. Obviously, she's relapsed because of everything that's going on. In the hospital, they give her methadone for 10 days, and she seems to be recovering, and then they cut it off at the the orders of of this narcotics bureau and she dies the next day. Oh my god. Yeah. And I believe all that is is covered in the in the film to yes. some degree. Yes it is. Just about all of that yeah. is covered. Yeah. Yeah, but that's all that's all in the in the opening of this book. But just I I wanted to bring up kind of to the the corollary here with Judy Garland because Wizard of Oz came out in 39 the same year that Strange Fruit was sung. Oh yeah. And we did a whole episode about her and her problems. But it's crazy in the book, this guy gets the files on Anslinger 
these old faded papers in a box somewhere. And yeah. he found out, this guy Harry Anslinger, that Judy Garland also had these problems. And his suggestion to the studio was that she was fine and should just take longer vacations. What? And don't you see the complete hypocrisy Ans- and double standard? Uh, Anslinger said that? Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. So it's like- You it have a one for one comparable here. Yeah. They're almost the same person. I mean, really. They really, really, really are if you if you minus the race thing. If you're looking mm-hmm. at these resumes, they're almost the same person. You yeah. take the race element out of it. It's it lay bare. It lay bare <laughs> what's going on. The guy who uh, starts that's the, shocking. The, Thank you yeah. for bringing that up because yeah. that's really at the heart of this is that the only reason that this happened to her is because of the color of her skin. Because of the stigmas that were created on purpose to surround that community and entrap that community. Yeah. And they made her a martyr. They made her a an example. That whole bureau is he in the book he profiles these other people that are also involved that just like have no good intent when it comes to it. And th- what's what's even more shocking as the as the last bit of the book reveals this guy Anslinger. He supported, there was a member of Congress who had a heroin habit, and he assured this member of Congress that there would be a safe and legal supply so this guy wouldn't have to go to oh gangsters and then got journalists to smother the story. And well, this- look, right there, isn't that evident of what the thinking is? They want the black community to be in danger. They yeah. want them to have to look for these things under the covers, under the rock. They want you to subvert your culture so that you get into dangerous situations so that something happens to you. Meanwhile, somebody in that exact same position yeah. with white skin and in the government is being given uh, a medical room in which to shoot up <laughs> you know, with, yeah. with medical grade heroin. I was like, don't you worry, we're going to take care of you. While they are manufacturing traps, cultural traps for an entire community and people. Yeah, and not entirely corroborated, but it was uh, referenced by an aide that this senator was Joe McCarthy, who was also the Red Scare um, yeah. against <laughs> certain just, groups of people. And what's crazy is like Anslinger uh, was Taylor. his- yeah. <laughs> Anslinger was his drug dealer. And it's, it's also like, oh, so you're willing to do it this for an addict bizarre. that you care about. You're willing, right? To you're willing to literally make yourself into a government drug dealer. Yeah. Um. And then in the last years of his life, this guy Harry Anslinger developed angina, which is a heart condition, and so he started using the drugs he railed about. He took daily doses of morphine. Oh my god! Before he died, so it's like oh, like not only when it affects your friends, but when it affects you. Yeah. You're willing to develop. Oh my god! What you think is the is the horrible thing that has to be completely destroyed. So. Who hired this man, J. Edgar? <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm just, I just, uh, mm, I feel like they knew. Anyway, let's go on. Yeah, Billie Holiday, a woman decades ahead of her time, did whatever she wanted with melody, drugs and alcohol conditions, with lovers, male and female. I think that the the question, and this is what Johan says in the book. He says, in this culture, we only tell one heroic story about people with addiction problems, and that's that they sometimes recover. And that's true, and that is heroic, and it should be commended and saying, but right. that's not the only heroic story to tell, it's because the only story. Billie Holiday never stopped using drugs, but does that not make her a hero? Like She also never stopped singing the song. People threw right. bottles at her. She went into the Deep South. She was constantly harassed. She was arrested multiple times. She went to jail. She kept singing this song 
that was the direct thing of them saying, hey, stop singing this song or we're going to get you for drugs. And so like, she's still a hero for that regard. And that's hopefully what the film shows and what this story is about. Billie Holiday's last scene in the film is in the hospital and Anslinger and another agent come to interview her on tape. And so he comes to prime her to make a statement and she looks at Anslinger and she's, you know, there's a, there's more to it than that, but she says, your grandbabies are going to be singing strange fruit. And she just laughs. She just laughs in his face and laughs over the recording and they pack up and leave because she's never going to stop and it won't stop. They can kill her and it won't stop. And Frank Sinatra told Ebony magazine in 58, he said, with few exceptions, every major pop singer in the U.S. during her generation has been touched in some way. It is Billie Holiday who was and still remains the greatest single musical influence on me. Wow. Lady Day is unquestionably the most important influence on American popular singing in the last 20 years. He said that. I mean, she's an example of why you do it. Yeah. She's, I mean, if you're making art, if if you got to get a message out there and you got to get this out of your soul, I mean, that's what it looks like. This unrelenting drive to tell your story, to stand up when the world is not ready and, and say this is wrong. Um, that That is a hero. <laughs> uh, she never stopped. All right. Well, thank you so much, Taylor. Thank yeah, you thank guys you. for sticking with us. Thanks for listening. Check us out on Instagram at IlliteratePod. Let us know what you're reading. Let us know what you're excited to watch. Uh, You never know when we're going to do an episode on it, and we would love to hear from you guys. Let us know what you thought of this episode, uh, and we will catch you next week.